Would you turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6? Zechariah chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 9 through 15. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, that would be page 1095. Zechariah chapter 6. Lord Jesus, you are so awesome and wonderful. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. No one like you. The greatest one. Faithful and true. Now and for all eternity. I pray, Lord, that we would see your greatness again in greater ways even tonight. From your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The state-mandated religion is the most dangerous and destructive force in all of human history. Political power, state power, and religious power blended into one is a recipe for complete disaster. A ruler over such a system like that has way too much power. There's just too much power. He can harness all of the power of religion and politics to manipulate people. It's really absolute power And we all remember what Lord Acton said. All power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. No human leader should have that power with all the state and the religion. It will end up in great catastrophe. And we have seen that throughout human history. And we have seen that even, unfortunately, throughout church history. A lot of ugly things have happened in the church when the state and the church get blended together. And I want to share just a few of those bad episodes in church history. A very significant event took place in 312 A.D. There was a power struggle in the Roman Empire at that time. A powerful ruler named Maxentius was holding Rome, and another ruler named Constantine was coming to take Rome from Maxentius. Now, how many of you have heard of Constantine? So Constantine was greatly outnumbered. There was no way he was going to take back Rome. Well, in October of 312... He prayed, and as the story goes, he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw a large cross in the sky at night, and there were words under that cross that said, In this sign, conquer. Constantine woke up the next morning and made all of his soldiers mark their shields with the Christian cross 
And then they advanced and conquered the city of Rome. They shouldn't have done it. They were greatly outnumbered, but they did it. It was a miraculous victory. And Constantine saw this as the confirmation of the Christian faith. And so Constantine became the Christian emperor of Rome, the first Christian emperor. And he made Christianity the recognized religion of the Roman Empire. Now, think about that. Before 312 A.D., Christians were outlaws. They were living in the catacombs. They were being rounded up and fed to the lions. Constantine made it the state religion. And the Christians got pampered. In fact, he gave complete freedom of worship to all Christians, all property that had been taken from Christians in the past was restored to them. He would recognize Sunday as a public holiday every week. And Constantine built all of these marvelous church buildings all over Rome and really all over the Roman Empire where Christians could now gather. Now, on one hand, that's a pretty cool thing, don't you think? And the Christians that were alive and a part of that and saw that, they saw it as this wonderful open door. They're going to go share the gospel and freely worship the Lord, and they're going to win the whole world for Christ. And so that was a really good thing. But it eventually became a mandated religion of the Roman Empire where it was forced on people. So a few years later, another emperor, Theodosius, in 380 AD, made this edict official within the Roman Empire. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, It is our will that all the peoples we rule shall practice the religion which the divine Peter, the apostle, transmitted to the Romans. We shall believe in the single deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, under the concept of equal majesty and of the Holy Trinity. We command that those persons who follow this rule shall embrace the name of Catholic Christians. The rest, however, whom we adjudge demented and insane, shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches, and they shall be smitten first by divine vengeance and secondly by the retribution of our own initiative, which we shall assume in accordance with divine judgment. Is that something that's good? <laughs> is the Christian religion, is the Christian faith something that God ever intended to be forced on people, mandated. Well, what do you think happened? The church became pretty corrupt at that point. Because don't you think everybody became Christians? If you wanted to have a part in the empire or whatever, 
you had to become a Christian. So you had a bunch of people supposedly becoming Christians just to join this state government and power system. So you began to have sort of a nation of Christians, like Christendom. but not true born-again Christians. So while at first that may have looked really good, it got really bad. Well, the church in Rome, as you might imagine, became very powerful. Rome's the capital of the Roman Empire. Now the Christian faith is the Christian religion of the world and the church in Rome became very powerful, and as it turns out, the bishops of Rome also became very, very powerful. In fact, eventually, you all know, the office of the Pope came into being. The bishop of Rome was said to be the Pope, the vicar of Christ, the infallible leader of the Catholic Church of the Roman Empire, with roots that you could trace back all the way to Peter. So you had this figure come on the scene, and he's still on the scene, and he's very, very powerful politically and religiously. Okay, so another very important event in church history then took place on Christmas Day, 799 A.D. Very important moment. Pope Leo III was in charge. He was the pope at that time. Rome was attacked by a country, some barbarians they called them. And they were successful in breaching the city of Rome, and I believe even Pope Leo was captured and whisked away at some point. Well, a very powerful ruler in France was called to bring an army and to help rescue Pope Leo III. Now, this guy, this French ruler, he's known in history as Charles the Great, or maybe you've heard him by this name, Charlemagne. Y'all heard of Charlemagne. So Charlemagne brings an army from France, and guess what he does? He rescues the Pope. Gets rid of those folks that were harassing him, saves everything. And out of thanksgiving for what Charlemagne had done, Pope Leo III, on Christmas Day, formally, anointed and sanctioned Charlemagne as the king. Historians tell us like this. Charles came to St. Peter's with a large retinue for the Christmas worship. Leo sings the mass and Charles prayed on his knees in front of the crypt of the apostle. Charles saw the pope approach. In his hands was a golden crown Leo placed it on Charles' head as the congregation cried to Charles, the most pious, crowned Augustus by God, to the great peacemaking emperor 
long life and victory. And at that point, the Pope even prostrated himself before King Charles. Now that is the first time in church history where there was this formal coronation of a political king, a state king, by a pope. And that began this connection between the popes and the kings that would last for the next thousand years. Now, again, at first, you could see this as a good thing. Hey, you got the political leader on board with Christianity and the spiritual leader on board with Christianity. And at first, the church and the state were to be different, helping people in different ways. But eventually it became corrupt. Eventually the church and the state began to butt heads. Eventually they even began to compete for power. So eventually many popes would seek to install kings that were sympathetic to what they wanted to do. And then many kings would seek to install popes that were sympathetic to what they wanted to do. So with all that back and forth, eventually the Roman Catholic Church, under the leadership of the Pope, became like its own nation. Like its own state, literally. In fact, the, the, the Catholic Church, under the leadership of the Pope, um, actually owned much of the land in Italy. Have you ever heard this? The Papal States. See the green in that center section of Italy? That's the Papal States. All that owned by the Roman Catholic Church under the leadership of the Pope. At their own nation. The Holy See. Independent. 16,000 square miles. They acquired that section of land in Italy from 756 to 1870. Well, right around 1870, Rome began annexing all of that land back so that now today all you have left is the Vatican City, which is about 121 acres. But again, the state of a Roman Catholic church. So you had this really powerful uh, church state under the leadership of a pope. And that led to a, a period of history that's known as the Christian Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. And it is the most corrupt time in all of church history. There's no other way to define it. It just became utterly corrupt. All kinds of terrible things happened at that time. You know, for, you know, for a, a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, the sacraments are very important, right? Especially the mass, 
in all of that. And in fact, from a Roman Catholic standpoint, you've got to partake of the sacraments to get saved and to stay saved. If you don't, if you don't partake of Mass, man, you're, you're in big trouble. And so, a lot of times, if somebody got in the way of the Roman Catholic Church at that time or the Pope, the Pope would excommunicate them. Get rid of them. You're not allowed to take Mass. In effect, he was consigning someone to hell. You don't take sacraments. You're not one of God's people. Your destiny is hell. And even that whole thing got elevated during this period of time in church history to something that was called the papal interdict. The interdiction of the Pope. Now here is where the Pope under this Roman state church could excommunicate an entire nation. An entire kingdom. If that nation or kingdom wouldn't do his bidding. As a matter of historical fact, on 23 March 1208, English bishops under orders from Pope Innocent III laid a general interdict on all of England and Wales. It lasted over six years until it was lifted on the 2nd of July, 1214. So how exactly did that work? Well, there was a big church. There were bishops all over the place. They got upset with England and Wales. Now, England and Wales had bishops in place that would be there to offer and And under the Pope's leadership from headquarters Rome, all bishops in England were no longer allowed to administer sacrament. You couldn't go. And it left all of those people in England and Wales feeling, and that was used as a political power tool. This is a picture where King John finally bows before the Roman power system so that the sacraments can now be administered again. Very, very corrupt thing. So it was during that time period also that there were the Crusades. Now, how many of you have heard of the Crusades? Another terrible time. So... You know, as you know, the Muslims were born, they come into power, and, and they go running into the, uh, the Holy Land, and they're tearing down churches, and they're tearing down holy sites, and they're putting up their mosques and doing all their thing. And the state, the Roman Catholic state, under the leadership of the Pope, issued forth crusades, send people out to go to the pro- promised land, and recover, smash down all the mosques, restore all the holy sites, rebuild the churches. And so that was done. Now, that was one of the most terrible moments in all of church history because in the process of the Crusades, many Muslims were slaughtered. And not just Muslims, Jews. Many, many Jews were slaughtered 
under the Crusades. In fact, what, like eight centuries, nine centuries since all of that, the Jews have a bad taste in their mouth for the church, including evangelical churches. Now, I've been to Israel many times, and I meet Jewish guys, and we have Jewish guys, and they love us, but they're not becoming Christians. And a lot of, and I've had talks, and it's the Crusades. They remember it. Terrible, terrible time. Well-meaning people, well-meaning human leaders in charge of a religion and a state, but making an utter wreck of things. So it was also during that time that the Inquisition took place. Now, so as, as this part of the church became more and more corrupt, there became more people, Christians, that began to challenge all the corruption in that state church. And a lot of folks began to question a lot of the things that was taught, um, there were men who decided, you know what, we need the scripture not in Latin, we need the scripture in our own language, and so there was efforts to translate the scripture into the common language of the day. And so that church had to create this office called the Inquisition, powerful office set up within the Catholic Church to root out and punish heresy throughout Europe and the Americas. So they sent these teams into different places. Inquisitors would arrive in a town, announce their presence, giving citizens a chance to admit to heresy. Those who confessed would receive punishment ranging from, you know, a pilgrimage to a whipping, but others would be tortured. And a lot of Men and women were burned at the stake as heretics under the Inquisition. So again, really, really tough time. Too much power in the hands of human human leaders who are trying to join church and state. Okay, well, right around 1517, October 31st, 1517, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, have you heard of this guy? He nails 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And these are challenges to many of the practices, the corrupt practices that were enforced by the Catholic Church. Now, there were a lot of people lighting fires before Martin Luther. There were a lot of people coming up and and trying to settle things. But this guy set everything on fire. The Reformation just took off, and so many, many people became Protestants. Protestants, Catholics, big fights, terrible things in the name of religion, right? Horrific things. 
So the Protestant church eventually, you know, it gets split into all kinds of different denominations, right? Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists. And a lot of times they're even fighting each other. As leaders of a religion and a state jockey for power. There is one reformer that I'd like to mention tonight, a guy by the name of John Calvin. Now, how many of you have heard of John Calvin? I think he, he, he came up with what? Based on his last name. Calvinism. Now, this guy was a brilliant man. This guy was really, really smart. A legal mind, a lawyer. In fact, I would argue that he was too smart for his own britches. He wrote that book called The Institutes of the Christian, The Institutes of, of Christian Living, The Institutes of Christian, something like that. And it's a very detailed uh, uh, explanation of all the different doctrines of the Christian faith as defined by the Protestants and all of that. And, and he's the one that came up with this idea of God's sovereignty and TULIP. Have you heard of that acronym, TULIP? The basis of reform theology, Calvinism, TULIP, T equals total depravity, U equals unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance of the saints. It's a whole reform theology thing, which, by the way, has become a really big deal even in our time. As there's been a big resurgence towards that. So he was a key reformer. A lot of people don't know this about John Calvin, but this guy actually tried to put a kingdom of God's city on planet Earth. A Christian utopia in the city of Geneva. Here's how the story goes. John was on the run. He was branded a heretic by the Catholic side, so he's on the run, running for his life. He stops in the city called Geneva. Geneva is basically completely lawless. They have no political leader. They have no state leader. It's completely uh, out in the open. There's another guy there who wants to reform the city of Geneva. And John Calvin happens to be in his city that night. So he gets John and he convinces John to come. Hey, come reform the city of Geneva. So the city councils offered Calvin a position, the professor of sacred scriptures. And he began his work with vigor. Listen carefully. He prepared a confession of faith to be accepted by everyone in Geneva who wished to be a citizen. He planned an educational program for all, and he insisted on excommunication, particularly expulsion from the Lord's Supper for those whose lives did not conform to spiritual standards. Now, does that sound familiar? It was the most strenuous program of moral discipline within Protestantism. 
And it was a bit more than the city fathers of Geneva had bargained for. So they tried it. Guess how long it lasted? One year. One year. It was too strenuous. All the people in Geneva, we're not going to buy this. We're not signing up for that. So they kicked John Calvin out of Geneva for three years. After three years, the people that were sympathetic to John Calvin said, we need you back. And so John Calvin came back to Geneva where he would spend the rest of his life in charge of a religious state system in the city of Geneva. Everyone in that city had to believe the same thing. Everyone had to follow the same rules. I read up on it. The elders of that church in Geneva were spies. They were literally sent out into the citizen to sniff out sin. Have you ever met a sin sniffer? (laughs) They're always sniffing out everybody's sin. The elders were required to do that. They went into all of the community and they found out who's dancing. Who's drinking? Who's singing? Who's playing an instrument? And then, of course, there were more serious things as well. And if they spotted you out, if they sniffed you out, you you came before John Calvin and his board. And they could excommunicate you from the church so that you could no longer take communion until you officially repented and went through. And you had to believe the way they said. A heretic, anybody who believed differently from them, cast out, excommunicated. So there's a real sad story in Geneva. A Spanish physician by the name of Michael Servetus sought refuge in Geneva. Now this guy was a heretic. He was running from the Catholic Church. This man denied the Trinity. So in the eyes of the Roman Catholic state, he's a heretic, he's on his run for his life. Well, guess what? The Protestants believe in the Trinity. This guy comes into Geneva, a Protestant city, he doesn't believe in the Trinity. So he was judged. He was charged. And eventually, that man was burned at the stake in Geneva at the beck and call of the Protestant leadership there. Now, hey, listen, if you don't believe in the Trinity, I think you're a heretic. But I'm not going to burn you to death. There's never any call for that. So, Geneva was just another version of the Roman Catholic state on the Protestant side. Too much power concentrated in one human leader. All kinds of problems. Well-meaning. Hey, let's Christianize the city. 
But it's just something that never ends right. Poor Calvin. Later generations, he was remembered primarily as the man who burned Servetus. Okay, and so you have that throughout all of church history. In every corner of the world, wherever anything like that has ever been tried. Well-meaning men, wanting to get things, but it ends in disaster. You know, there's a Russian Orthodox church, don't you? Right? And the Pope, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, is this guy by the name of Kirill. He and Vladimir are tight. <laughs> they move lock and step. The Russian Orthodox Church is full. The leader of the Russian Orthodox Church is fully on board with what Putin's doing in the Ukraine. Totally on board. And this is what's really ironic. In Ukraine, there are hundreds of Russian Orthodox Church parishes. How wild is that? Oh, how crazy. How twisted. It can get. So... I've really picked on a lot of church history tonight. We could also talk about the Islamic caliphate. Could we not? They have their own version of state and religion. Their pope is called the imam, right? And we've seen what, what a caliphate looks like. I don't know what woman in their right mind would ever want to become Muslim. Absolute corruption. Wild scale corruption. Okay, and so now you have all these different religions combined to states and human leaders. And what have you seen throughout human history? Killing each other. Fighting over all these things. Corrupt. There shouldn't be that much power. And of course, the ultimate state-mandated religion is still yet future. The Bible teaches that there is an antichrist coming one day who will be in charge of the political world, the political religion, the political economy. And it will be the most ugly example yet. I'll say it again. The state-mandated religion is the most dangerous and destructive force in all of human history. God never wanted that much power in a human leader. And we know that because... In the Old Testament, when the kingdom of Israel was a kingdom, was a monarchy, there was a king of Israel, and you remember there was a high priest, right? The high priest and the king were two different positions. 
Nobody was allowed to be a king and a high priest. There was a wall of separation. You're a high priest. You're a king. You don't mix. That's too much power. And, and the Lord was deadly serious about that. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, there's a story of a king by the name of Uzziah who decides he wants to go into the temple and burn a little incense. And so he goes in and he's going to burn incense. He thinks as big shot king, he can walk into the temple. The priests follow him inside and say, hey, what are you doing? Get out of here. And this guy keeps lifting the censer and he says, no, I'm going to do it. And you know what happens? Immediately, leprosy broke out all over his forehead. And he became a leper for the rest of his life, lived the rest of his life in an isolated home. God says, you will not combine a king and a priest. That is off limits. Because it's dangerous. So I am totally for the separation of church and state. But let me clarify it here in America. (laughs) What does it mean, the separation of church and state in our society? Well, what were the pilgrims escaping when they came to America? They were were escaping, really many of them, a state-mandated religion. They wanted to come into America so they could worship the way they want. America, in in, in America, the idea is that no, the state will never mandate a religion. It will never tell us how to worship. Praise God for that, amen? It was never intended to say you got to move everything Christian out of the government. We live in a democracy. People can choose and we can vote for who we want and this country was established on judeo-christian rules but the whole idea of there being this separation from church and state is that man there will there cannot be a government mandated religion in the united states and i'm very glad for that Because it's just too powerful and it's been shown over and over throughout history how corrupt that can become. But you know what's really sad? You know what's really sad? We need a priest king. We need one. The human race is sinful. We need this awesome leader. Where all of the concentration of politics and religious are focused on. And he can come in and be our leader. We need that. And I have to tell you, there's such a leader that's coming. And that leader is spoken about in these last verses of Zechariah chapter 6. Now some of you wonder, are you ever going to get to the Bible tonight? There is an amazing passage here in Zechariah 
chapter 6. Now remember the background. Um, when Zechariah wrote this book, 50,000 Jews have returned from Babylon to the city of Jerusalem. Understand, they have two leaders. They have a leader called Joshua. He's the high priest. And then they have another leader called Zerubbabel. He's like the governor. He's like the king. They return to Jerusalem, and they are commissioned to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Zechariah is given eight visions, which he shares with the people. And those visions were meant to encourage them to finish the work, to do the temple, to do all that work. But as we've been seeing, those visions also point way ahead to this awesome time when there's going to be a kingdom reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so right after those eight visions, we've looked at all those eight visions. Look what the Lord tells Zechariah to do in verse 9. Read this carefully with me. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives from Heldai, Tobijah, and Judea, who have come from Babylon, and go to the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate what? Crown, and set it on the head of whom? Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, so watch this very carefully. Three exiles from Babylon show up in Jerusalem. They come with gifts. They have gold and silver. They're staying at this other guy's house. These gifts of gold and silver are no doubt going to be used to ornament the temple when it gets finished. They're rebuilding the temple. God sends Zechariah into the house, takes some of that gold and silver, fashion it into an elaborate crown, a royal crown, like the crown that you would give to a king. And then go and put that crown on the head of whom? Joshua, the high priest. That's weird. Joshua's the spiritual leader. He's the religious leader. He's the high priest. Zerubbabel would be more like the king-like figure, wouldn't you think? He's the governor. In fact, you can trace Zerubbabel back to David, back to Judah. You go look in the lineage of Jesus Christ and you'll find Zerubbabel in that line. You, you, you would think that they'd put the royal crown on Zerubbabel because you don't combine the high priest and the king. But Zechariah is told by the Lord... Put the crown on the high priest. And then they have a little coronation ceremony. I mean, this is, they, they crown them. And then they're supposed to speak to them. Verse 12, then speak to him, Joshua, after you've crowned him with the king's crown, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. 
and shall sit and rule on his throne, so he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Those are incredibly wonderful words. Were they meant for Joshua? I mean, it's, this guy's going to build the temple. This guy's going to be the glory of the temple. This guy's going to be a king, and he's going to sit on his throne, and he's going to be a priest who sits on the throne, and there's going to be perfect peace between the priesthood and the monarchy, all concentrated on this guy Joshua. Do you think that applies to Joshua? It's all symbolic. Because look what we immediately read in verse 14. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple. In other words, get that crown off his head. We put the crown on his head. We had this symbolic coronation ceremony. Now get the crown off of his head. It's going to be put as a memorial in the temple when it's rebuilt. That crown is destined for someone else. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Elam, Tobijah, Judea, and the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So everything about this is symbolic. God is telling Zedekiah, Zechariah, and, and the people, I want to give you a picture of what the Messiah is going to look like. Joshua represents what the Messiah is going to look like. And he even uses that term, the branch, which we talked about. It's a messianic term. All of this is a picture of the Messiah. And what's being said here? When the Messiah comes, he will be king and he will be priest. And he will have that in perfect peace. So yes, the human race desperately needs someone who can do it. And one day Jesus will return. Scripture says, it points to this, when Jesus comes again, he sets up his throne and he reigns and he rules in Jerusalem on the throne of David for a thousand years. And he will reign and rule perfectly. And he will reign as the king and the priest. And compared to how awesome mankind's done it before. He'll really show us how to do it. Amen? So this is one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus Christ. The king the high priest, all that power resting upon him. There is no one greater than Jesus. No one. And my brother and sister in Christ, I, can I just... Jesus is that for you right now. And don't ever forget it. 
Yes, one day he's going to come and reign and rule literally, and we're going to see it. But do you know the Bible, the New Testament teaches that right now Jesus is your high priest? He's your high priest. He's your religious leader. And he's also your king. And he wants to direct everything about your life. As a Christian, you have the best leader. You have the best shepherd. He's your savior. He's your friend. He's your redeemer. He's your king. He's your high priest. As a Christian, you keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and you remember how great he is. And you spend your whole life serving him and praising him. My brother, my sister, don't get all caught up in the political stuff. Political leaders. Okay, great, we get a vote. And we should. We should exercise our freedom. And I think we should vote for the best who closely resemble our Christian worldview and belief. But I'm not going to lose sleep. Because you know who my real political leader is? King Jesus. (laughs) And you know what? Don't get all caught up in all of the church politics and the history and get fixated on somebody like the Pope or some pastor or some whatever. They're not your your leader as a Christian. You know who your leader is? Jesus Christ himself. He's your high priest. Focus on him. Spend your life serving him. And my brother and sister in Christ, that's the one we need to be preaching about. Amen? Amen? It's all about Jesus. You have everything you need in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's close it there because I've hit you with a lot tonight, haven't I? There's a lot to think about and consider. But Lord, as we close, we are so grateful for who you are. That you can be trusted with all that power. You're the high priest. You're the king. And one day you're coming again and you're going to show us how to do it. And if we belong to you, we will be citizens of your kingdom watching you do it. No one greater. No one better. No one more worthy of praise than you. And I pray, Lord, that as your people, we would recognize that as a truth today. Be the king of our hearts today. Be the king of our lives. Be our high priest. Be our shepherd. Be our leader. Help us follow you. Help us stay fixated upon you. Thank you that you have the power to save now and forevermore. 
Father, I do want to pray if there might be anyone here tonight or listening online and you've never met this Jesus. Jesus is your Savior. He died for you. He is the Son of God who became man, left heaven, came here, died on the cross for your sins, rose again the third day, is alive. If you put your faith and trust in him, he'll become your Savior. You'll become a child in his family, a citizen of his kingdom. He'll be your king, your priest, your friend, your Lord, right now and forevermore. Have you ever received him? Please don't think of Christianity as a religion. Think of Christianity as a living relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And you become a Christian, you become born again when you receive him as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, I'd like to lead you in a simple prayer right now. Requires placing your faith in Christ, admitting that you're a sinner, that you need to have all your sins forgiven. Asking him to be your, if that's, if that's you, pray this prayer. Lord, I acknowledge that I need you. I acknowledge before you and confess that I am a sinner. And I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And rising again that third day. And right now I invite you. Be my savior. Be my king. Be my priest. Be my lord. Be everything. Save me. Make me yours. Now. And forevermore. In Jesus name. Amen.